Welcome to Church in the Basement, where we seek to see God more clearly and to live a life loving God and loving others. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in their lusts, in the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonor the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know the righteous decree that, or God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. So here we are back in Romans. Romans 1, and Paul has given this intro um, 
which basically guides us through a lot of the reasons why Paul wanted to go to Romans, why he's writing to the church in Rome. Remember, he wanted to establish a forward operating base to send the gospel as far as Spain. Paul's mind was always missional. He also was attracted by this church's faith because remember there was disunity between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers or those who were not Jewish because in the Jewish culture, there were all these traditions that um, had to be upheld in order to be holy. But when Jesus came and he practiced a lot of those same traditions, he didn't abolish those things, but he fulfilled those things. And so they're not necessary for salvation, even though they are helpful reminders of remembering who God is and what God has done and what he will continue to do. A lot of these traditions, festivals, these things that are uh, done within tradition, um, Jewish tradition, are to celebrate the faithfulness of God and to remember the faithfulness of God. So, of course, all throughout the New Testament, we see this this uh, rift between Jewish believers and non-Jewish believers and how they are to operate. So Paul is writing for those reasons too. Um, but he, man, he wants to go and be that, be with them, be encouraged by their faith, um, give some spiritual gift, receive some spiritual gift. So he's looking forward to seeing and being with this Roman church. So it's interesting that he starts his letter talking about the wrath of God. And this is something that we approach in a very interesting way within the church. The wrath of God, many of us, even though we have had to, at least those of us who were raised in the church, or even those of us outside of the church who have recently become believers, who come into the church, we have to fight this tendency um, to look at God and view God uh, like a galactic police officer, that he's just waiting for you to screw up to go and get a ticket. Now I know to go and give you a ticket and tell you that you've done wrong. Now, granted, that's not what police officers in our culture are for, just to tell you when you're doing something wrong. But we see in Romans 13 that they are literally instituted by God. The government is instituted by God to keep order within society, right? Within society. So they're there to set up boundaries and to uphold those boundaries. Now, is this a bad thing to look at God in this way? Uh, no, there is an element of God where, of course, I just said he institutes uh, these organizations that uphold, like government, that uphold boundaries. But God is not a galactic police officer. He's not like other um, mythologies or little G God cultures that have come out of our uh, human history. Like immediately I go to Zeus, right? Sitting on Mount Olymp Olympus with lightning bolts in his hands. And if you piss him off, he's going to throw a lightning bolt at you. That's not the way the wrath of God works. Granted, how do we fight how do we fight this mentality of looking at God like a little G God or, or like a galactic police officer when we see scriptures within the Old Testament 
um, seeing God's wrath on display in a way that's hard to shake. It's unshakable. Um, and, and this is something within church culture that, that we have to acknowledge that uh, there are a lot of believers who have said that, and maybe you've heard it before, that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. Remember that John wrote in uh, one of his letters, he wrote that God is love, right? God is love, that great statement. God is love and that great encouragement and that reminder. But then we see scriptures like in Jeremiah, and we have to remember that, that scripture says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when we look at this scripture in Jeremiah, we have to reconcile it with God is love. We have to reconcile it with God is love. So when we approach the wrath of God, the wrath of God, and we even see here in Romans 1, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all God, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, so we see that God's wrath is against the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. So I want to bring you to Jeremiah 21, where we see uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, um, who was a part of a nation that was the basically supreme power at the time. Uh, they were at the gates of Jerusalem, um, besieging Jerusalem. And the current king of Jerusalem was Zedekiah, King Zedekiah. And I had just read through this um, actually in a children's Bible with my, my daughters, and they put it in very simple terms. I'm going to give a similar paraphrase. I encourage you to go read it. A similar paraphrase before we get to what God actually says through Jeremiah to Zedekiah. Um, Zedekiah was king. And there's this tendency of, of wanting power, wanting things your way, wanting control when you are given power, right? Wanting to hold your power. And the natural tendency of a king when another king is knocking on your door about to wipe out your town is to resist, right? Is to resist. But Jeremiah comes with the word of the the word of the Lord, he is a prophet. He is one who brings the word of God to the people of God. Um, that is his role in the kingdom of God. And Jeremiah was telling Zedekiah, you have to submit to Nebuchadnezzar. You cannot resist him. God is asking you to, to just give in to this and surrender but he will protect you and he will provide for you and your people. Don't worry. He is still the provider, the great provider and the great protector. It doesn't always look the way we think that's going to look, right? But Zedekiah, by and large, did not want to give in to this king that was about to lay waste to Jerusalem. So it says that Jeremiah came to Zedekiah and he said this, thus says the Lord, 
This is in Jeremiah 21, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the wall. And I will bring them together into your midst, into the midst of the city, and I myself will fight against you out with outstretched hand and strong arm, in anger and in fury and in great wrath. I will strike down the inhabitants of the city, both man and beast. It's pretty heavy to hear God use that kind of terminology. And we have to understand that God, even though God is love, he has a capacity to hate. He has a capacity to burn with anger against the things that God or that humanity is doing. Um, he has a capacity to be angry. We even see in, in scriptures like Proverbs 6, um, let me read it to you, where it says in Proverbs 6, verse 16, it says this, there are six things that the Lord hates, six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abominations to him. It says, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. These are six things that the, that, that the scriptures, that, that the Bible says God hates. God hates. And so as we, we uncover in scripture that God has this capacity to hate things, um, which again, all the way in Revelation, if you go to the New Testament, we see, uh, let, me, let me turn to it here. So in Revelation, I believe it's in two. Yeah, here it is. It's Jesus. So this is red letters in most of your Bibles. It says to the church in Ephesus, he's speaking, and it says here, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do not do the works you, f you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. We'll come back to that later. Yet this you have you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he's talking about this group of people, which the church is having trouble with. And he says, I also hate what they are doing, what they are doing. He hates what they are doing. And where does this come from? So this capacity, we can look at it from the perspective of, okay, God is is love, but he, he's also just angry and furious. But, but when you go back to Genesis one and the purpose that we were created for in Genesis one, he says, he, he, all of God, God, the father who wills it all, 
God, the Son who carries out the will of the Father, and the Holy Spirit, the delight between the two, they get together and and they say, okay, now let us make man in our image. And so in the image of God, he created them. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, made in his image, made for the purpose of the first thing he commanded them to do is be fruitful and multiply, multiply my image, bear my image, bring my worship to this world, that this world would be a beacon of who God is, that it would share who God is. It would be an image. We would be an image of God. We would be an image of God. And when we take scriptures like Jeremiah 21, where we see he he has this great wrath. It says, in anger, in fury, in great wrath. So when we think of great wrath and how God has displayed his wrath or or has had had to carry out his great wrath on the earth, we immediately go to what what is the biggest story, right? It's Noah. It's when he, and, and we love to do Noah in Sunday school because all the animals, uh, all the cute animals on the boat, and it's, it's cute, right? But the reality is that God drowned the whole world. He drowned the whole world. The whole world drowned. But it's important for us to look at and remember why. It says in Genesis 6, just listen, listen to the way that this is explained, why he did what he did. In Genesis 6, 5, and remember, right before I, before I read this, hold in your mind that we were made in the image of God, that we were created to display all of God is, who God is, that we would be vessels of his love and his power on the earth, ambassadors of the one true God, the God who is love, as John says. Chapter 6, verse 5 of Genesis, it says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. And the Lord regretted. Yeah. Yes. The Bible says this. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Do you hear that? It's a God who created humanity in love, in purpose. And what did humanity do? Instead of loving and living in the power of God as his ambassadors and his image bearers, 
we went to worshiping ourselves. And what was our greatest downfall? I had an opportunity to uh, preach at the church I work at um, here in Yakima. And and I was asked to preach on uh, Ephesians 4. Um, And Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus in 4 verse 17, he says, Now this I say and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Gentiles meant non-Jew, but in in this case, he's talking about um, he's talking about the world, anyone outside of the faith. In as he uses the word Gentiles here, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. This is very in line with our text today, Romans 1, right? Due to their hardness of heart, and they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So at the fall, we see Eve and Adam standing right there. Um, We can't get that twisted. Adam standing right there being tempted by the serpent, but what, what she gives into is not, is, is not the doing of the serpent. It is that the apple or, or this fruit looked good. It looked like it would taste good. And so they ate it. Not to mention that the lie that the serpent had told that if they eat it, they would be like God. That had to feel good, right? This idea that, man, I could be like God. So when Paul uses the term sensuality here in Ephesians 4, that word isn't just sexual. It's not sexuality. It's sensuality. So it's to feed your senses, So to give in to anything that looks good, tastes good, sounds good, feels good. To give in to your senses. And as it says in our text today, to worship the creature rather than the creator. The reason why we as humans give in to sensuality is because we are serving ourselves. We are serving ourselves. It says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And if you look back at those, those six things that, that God hates, it's all self-serving haughty eyes. So when, when Adam and Eve looked at the fruit, they, they were, it was the eyes They looked at the fruit and they saw that it looked good and they were driven by the passion that was stirred up by their eyes, one of what looked good, one of their senses, a lying tongue. Why do we lie? We lie to put other people down or to put put ourselves up, right? To bolster ourselves up. It says to shed innocent blood. Why, Why was the first human murdered, right? Cain and Abel. One of them wanted what the other one had. It was out of jealousy. 
He wanted what the other one had, so he killed to get it. Little did he know he would get a curse instead. The heart devises wicked plans because we're trying to control things because we want to get what we want. Make haste to run to evil. They're those things that we desire and we want and we see in Galatians. Those lists, the fruit of the flesh. The things that we want drive us towards evil. A false witness who breaks out who breathes out lies, again, that's lying, putting others down or bolstering ourselves up, and one who sows discord among brothers. Usually when we are divisive, we're trying to single people out so that we can manipulate people. And I know that's getting to the root of all of this stuff, but it's selfishness that drives all of these things that it lists um, here in Proverbs 6 that, that God hates. All of these things that God hates, it's selfishness and self-serving. All of these things are. So when we see in our text, because they exchange the truth about God, it's important for us to recognize in the garden, they were living in the provision, in the protection, in the goodness of God. It says when God went to search for them, he walked out in the cool of the day as they would. They were in the presence of God. They were living in the purpose of God. They were led by God daily in what they did to work the land and to bring his image to it. They were as close to the, the kingdom of God as has ever been, as has ever been. But humanity has digressed since the fall. We call it the fall for a reason, and evolution would promote that, man, things just get better and better and better, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But, but it's, uh, I heard Skip Heitzig, uh, Calvary Chapel pastor down in Albuquerque, he said in, in, it, instead of evolution, it's, it's devolution or de-evolution, um, that things just get worse and worse, and they digress, they digress to this point where the things that we want, the unrighteousness, the selfishness, as it says here in verse 18, it says, and ungodliness and unrighteousness, when we go against the purpose of God to live for him, instead we live for ourselves, it suppresses the truth of who God is because we can't live with it. So much so that we see in scriptures like verse 23, it says, and exchange the glory of the immortal God. They were literally living in the glory of the immortal God. Somehow humanity digresses to this point where the truth about God brings so much, like we'd reject it so heavy as human beings. We want to shove it under the pillow. um, And the very pillow that, that we're resting our arm on to watch, uh, binge watch our Netflix shows um, to numb ourselves from the truth of, of life, why we exist, our purpose in life. If you, if you go out and you take a poll um, of what drives people, usually they'll say happiness, but somewhere along the lines in the conversation, there will be a question of why you exist, but most people just suppress it, suppress it. And how do they suppress it? With whatever numbing agent they can do, whatever they can give their senses that feels good so that they don't have to think about their purpose. They don't have to think about why they live. 
And and if we're not serving ourselves, we see in, in countless cultures that we create gods for ourselves. Little g, little g, things to worship. Today, they're less obvious. But in ancient days, like, I mean, dragons are worshipped in the Far East. We see in, in Egyptian culture, right? There's, there's Horus, who's the hawk or Anubis, who's the jackal, and they do these weird things like keep crypts or something. And and they like, people worship them because they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They're suppressing the truth. So they make up these, these fake gods, these fallacies in trying to answer that, that question, why do we live? Because they're suppressing the truth of who God is. But Paul says in here, he says, but there's no excuse. There's absolutely no excuse. And why is there no excuse? So we used to, in Argentina, we would pass out tracks. Uh, we would just go downtown and we would pass out these these little tracks. And on the track, at some point, it says like how, how good, it said something about goodness. And the purpose of the track was to walk you through um basically the 10 commandments because in evangelism it gets very complex because you go out and you say Jesus loves you and a lot of people will go oh great I love me too I like Jesus because we worship the creature rather the creator we worship ourselves and we serve ourselves so this tract was meant to point to what goodness is and then as you ask the question have you ever stolen have you ever lied have you ever done any of these things well you've broken god's perfect law and this is why you need a savior this is why you need a savior and uh i'll never forget there was this guy i handed it to um and he looks at me and he goes dude nobody's good but god nobody's good but god and (laughs) that that is so true um, but we don't believe that as human beings. Um, we don't believe that and receive that because most most people that that you talk to, especially if you're heavy into evangelism and bringing the message of Jesus to to the lost in your community, you encounter, hey, I just I feel like I if I just live a good life and I'm kind to people, um, then I'll be all right. If, if there is a judgment seat and there is a God, he'll just be like, well, you, you did pretty good, man. You, you can come in. Um, but Paul is saying here there's no excuse for you not to pursue the truth of who God is. And he says, for what can be known, this is in verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In the things that have been made. A number of years ago, they put out this vehicle that when it came out, it's a car. It's it's like a supercar. Um, when it came out, they were calling it like an engineering masterpiece uh, the car retailed for, I think, the lowest you could get it for was $350,000. That's wild for a car. But they were calling it this engineering masterpiece. And I know everybody gets jacked up about the Tesla nowadays. But um, 
It was an engineering masterpiece, and it's it was made by Lexus. It was called the Lexus LFA. LFA. And for car people out there, some people may agree with me. It was just what I or may agree or disagree with that statement, but it was just something I read. They were calling it an engineering masterpiece. It was this perfect car. Now, if you saw this car and you were inspecting it and like at a car show or something like that, and you got in it and you were looking at all the bells and whistles, you were seeing how, you know, airflow and all this stuff, right? How, how somebody had put this together and crafted it. And it was probably somebody's life work, life's work, right? To engineer this vehicle that would be dubbed this masterpiece, if somebody walked up to you at that car show or wherever you're looking at this car and they said, yeah, it's crazy. We just wandered into this abandoned warehouse that used to make cars. Um, and it, but it's been shut down for years. All the parts were there, but, or the parts weren't even there. Uh, this abandoned warehouse, we just wandered into it and this just happened by accident. This just happened by accident. You would look at that person and say, you are an idiot. There's no way, there's no way this car would just be formed out of nothing. The construction of the vehicle calls to a creator. Not just that, but a plan, a plan, probably tons of planning. Uh, you have to gather um, resources and all these things to put this together that there's time spent on this and that somebody carefully crafted it and the details and all these things, right? And you would call that person insane if they believed that that just that car, the Lexus LFA was just put together by accident. That all the pieces just happened to fall together at the right time, at the right place, with enough time given for it to just happen on accident, that that could just happen. You, would, you wouldn't believe that. But that's, that's what people believe about the creation of the world. We were, we were at the Portland City Zoo uh, this last week. Uh, we were out of town um, and it was awesome because my daughters hadn't been to a zoo yet, um, you know, four and six years old, and it was great. Um, my four-year-old was, she was like, I can't wait to see the next animal. She was so excited. And then my other daughter um, was just running all over the place. She was so jazzed and just wanted to see everything. And it's awesome to go back to these things that you know are cool and incredible but to go back with your kids and, and see it through their eyes. But my dad, he was so funny. We were standing there at the giraffes. And I remember reading some weird fact about giraffes that like, if their necks weren't exactly as long as they were, um, like their hearts would explode or something like that. I apologize if you know the fact and I'm getting that wrong, but there's some, like biological, like there's something really weird about their anatomy. And I, I think my dad and I had talked about this before. Um, and of course at the giraffes, 
he walks up and he whispers in my ear and he goes, just by accident. That just happened, just by accident. And then later we're at the elephants, right? And it was cool because they had all been inside uh, for some reason. And right when we walked up to the exhibit, they're at the Portland City Zoo. They've got this big area for the elephants and they open it up. And the elephants come running out and they're like throwing stuff with their trunks and doing all this, like they're running around and it's exciting to see the elephants. Like when you go to the zoo, a lot of the animals are just like sleeping and snoozing in the middle of the day, taking a nap. But the elephants were very active. And so it was really cool. And my dad, once again, walks up, whispers in my ear. And that happened just by accident. And, and it's so true. Like, I love how we could go there and just um, be looking, um, looking at all these things and not acknowledging God was the one who put it all together. And I love how my dad, of course, in so many ways uh, in life, is helpful in, in pointing things to God and turning things into worship. And that's what we should do as Christians, right? Turn all things into worship. But we're going through the zoo and it's easy to get caught up in, oh man, it's great that my daughters are, are excited about all this. But it really is a moment to acknowledge the creator as you're gazing upon the creation. Uh, another time I, I used to drive down from Bend, Oregon, down to Grants Pass a lot. Uh, my wife is from down in Grants Pass, Oregon. And and so I used to drive down there to see her or to hang out with her family. And um, I remember driving through the forest one time. And I don't know about you, but for years and years and years, and even now I sort of have this tendency of imagining heaven as, as being built uh, made up of human structures, right? Maybe not like New York City level, but maybe like great like Greek pillars and looking like some sort of an ancient uh, structure in 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 heaven. But I was driving through the forest this one day, and I'm looking at the trees, and I'm like, "Wow, that is just like God." When we have to craft these rocks or shape these rocks or the metal or whatever, these things, these minerals, right? Inanimate, non-living, these things into structures. God always one-ups one us, right? That, that he, his pillars, the pillars that he creates are like the redwoods, these massive living organisms that root into the ground and they exist for years and years and years and years and they're living. They're living and active and they're putting off, um, they're giving us oxygen and, and they're just these incredible structures and you walk through forests and you're like, wow, this is greater than any city. There's a difference between walking through a forest or going through Yosemite or Yellowstone and walking through New York City, right? One gives life. And one, at least for me, I get a little overwhelmed when I'm in big cities. But 
But when we go out to the forest, like we go camping to be refreshed and renewed. It all points back to the creator. And even if it isn't just like a blatant testament to who God is for most people, it should at least beg the question, why? Like, where did this come from? Why? Why does this exist? Which brings it back to we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. When we're in the woods and we go, how did this happen? People say that this happens by accident, but how and why? We don't continue down that road because we take the things that we do to please our senses and we suppress that truth and unrighteousness. We don't continue down the road. We don't move forward. We create, uh, we, we make ourselves gods or in, in years past, in ancient days, or even in the Bible, they would erect these, these golden structures, Baal, right? These golden structures or Baal, um, however you want to say it. Um, these statues that they would worship, they would sacrifice their children. They would kill their children in worship. They would kill their children in worship. And and that leads us to, uh, it, it goes, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts and impurity and dishonoring their bodies among themselves, right? We don't acknowledge the fact that most of the um, religion or culture at this time when the gospel was going forth, um, most most of the cities in the area, in Roman culture, Greek culture, the way that you worshipped certain gods was to engage in like orgies. Like what? What? And of course people wanted to do that. It's sensuality. It's doing what feels good, what looks good, what sounds good. Like that's total depravity right there, right? That you would enter into that. So it says that God gave them up. God gave them up. Now at this point we have to address So what is this relationship between the wrath of God and how we suppress the truth and unrighteousness? God is love, as John says. God is infinitely so. He is infinitely perfect, infinitely holy. And the wrath of God has more to do with God's holiness and our ungodliness and unrighteousness than anything else. The love of God And God being love, love is an attribute of God, what's called an attribute of God. Wrath is not an attribute of God. It is something that exists because we are ungodly and we are unrighteous. You've maybe heard me uh, give, give the analogy or the picture before that if you take a clear, um, purified glass of water, right, and you're about to drink it, But somebody comes and puts just one little drop of feces in it, one little drop of poop. It's, you're not going to drink the water. It's not clean to drink anymore. So an unholy people coming into the presence of an unholy God, that does not work. That does not work. And because we have fallen short of the glory of God and we have rebelled against a holy and a perfect God... His wrath is upon us. His wrath is upon us. But how his wrath comes upon us 
is different than him just thrusting it upon us. And the key is starting here in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up, gave them up. I want to take you back to that text in in, uh, Jeremiah 21. In that text, it says, in anger, in fury, and in great wrath, which if you Google the term wrath, um, which we don't get our our biblical definitions uh, from Google, just a reminder there, we do not get biblical definitions for words from Google. But if you look up in Google or on Google, the definition of wrath, it's extreme anger extreme anger, right? So we take our our Google definition and we throw it in that scripture in, in Jeremiah that God was coming in extreme anger against Zedekiah, against Zedekiah in Jerusalem. But I want you to look at it this way. With the heart of a father who created us to be his image bearers, to bear love, to bear with one another in unity, to bring his power and his love to the world, to be a vessel of his power and his love. When this King Zedekiah was so power hungry and loved his kingship so much, his kingdom, his world, and wanted to not obey the word of the good and perfect provider and protector who was saying, just give in to Nebuchadnezzar and I will still take care of you. But he wanted it his way. You know what God was saying? He was saying, I'm going to give you up to what you want. I'm going to give you over to your power. Go ahead, try and exercise your power against Nebuchadnezzar. Go against what I am asking you to do and see what happens. He gave him up to his own kingdom on his own. Many times in the Old Testament, we don't acknowledge the fact that the wrath of God comes against those who resist and disobey God. So his spirit leaves them. His spirit and his favor and his blessing leaves them and he gives them over to what they want. When Saul comes against the anointed, comes against the anointed, King Saul comes against the anointed of God because of jealousy, because of what he wanted, right? Because of his kingdom. He comes against David, who is, who has been uh, destined to be the next king, right? The anointed one of God. It says that the spirit of God left him. God gave him over, gave him over to what he wanted. So we see there in verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God. And the truth about God is that he is above all. We should be looking to him as provider, protector, as as our God, the one who created us, the one who purposed us. Why wouldn't we ask him for direction and guidance instead of feeling like we can do it on our own? Why wouldn't we just worship him and serve him? 
He deserves this statement in verse 25 where it says, Who is blessed forever. Amen. He is God. But we choose to serve ourselves instead, and he's just going to give us over to that. He's not going to fight us in that. For this reason, God gave them up. There it is again in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, gave them up to sensuality. And he says, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The due penalty for their error. This is an explicit uh, look in at something that shows how God gives us up. Okay, if women want to exchange the natural way that we have relations and women with women, and then he says men with men, he's addressing homosexuality here. He's saying men committing shameless acts with men. If you are a man and you have passion for another man, I don't know. I just remember you don't hear about this a lot now, but I remember even when I was in grade school, there was this huge like awareness push about AIDS, HIV and AIDS. And the main cause of HIV and AIDS, which is a serious internal, um, it, it's passed from blood to blood. Um, the way that people were getting AIDS and HIV um, and it was spreading so rapidly, at least when I was in grade school and even before, I don't know if it's still, I should look up some statistics on this, but it, if that's just not being talked about, but HIV and AIDS is a main byproduct and consequence of men with men <laughs> because it's not the natural way to have relations with an, another human being. He's saying women exchange the natural relations and, and we're contrary to that. And likewise, likewise saying the same, he says men with men. So we can assume he's saying women with women and men with men. And I know this is controversial, but he's honing in on it here. This is what he's saying in the scripture, that this is not the way God intended. He intended for us to, uh, that the man should leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. One man, one woman coming together in one flesh. And he's saying this is, this is all in Genesis. It's pointing back to Genesis. The natural way that we were created was made in the image of God to be fruitful and multiply the image of God and to work as worship unto God, that everything that we do would be worship to God. But when we serve ourselves and we worship ourselves and we worship our senses and, and we, we live for this surfacey happiness and pleasure in life, he goes on to say, and, and, and we suffer the consequences like HIV and AIDS in this exam, example that he's giving, now, I'm just drawing conclusions because it says receiving in themselves. That sounds pretty pretty internal, right? He goes on to say, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, again, acknowledging ourselves instead of God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Now, in that, that, that word, it says 
debased. And again, this is the third time God or Paul Paul says in this text, God gave them up. God gave them up to a debased mind. This is a mind that has no foundation. This is a mind that has no foundation and is just floating around trying to find the next best pleasure in life. Gave them up to a debased mind. No foundation. No foundation in who God is, purpose. It's a purposeless life. That when you're not answering that question, why do I exist and what is my purpose and ending up in the place where, oh, well, God created you and he gave you a plan and he gave you a purpose and he's written out your days before you. He created you in his image that you would be a bearer of love to the world. You just float around trying to please yourself and please your senses. He will give you over to it. This is the third time he said. It's not Zeus in the clouds with lightning bolts ready to throw them down when you make a wrong move. He said, whatever you worship, I'll give you over to it. And guess what? When we worship ourselves and our marriages, if I were to go out and cheat on my wife and just and just give in to whatever I see, I just take and I do whatever I want, that hurts my wife, that hurts people, that hurts my kids, that destroys my marriage, that brings death to my marriage. It ends in death and destruction. If I see those drugs or, or, or whatever addiction and I just do what is pleasure pleasurable to me. It has ramifications in our life that ends in death and destruction. And he goes on to say what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they Know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I read that list and I realize I am guilty of those things. And in life, you will realize, even if you're walking with Jesus, have walked with Jesus a long time, that maybe looking back on on a situation that you've moved through, you were heartless in it. You were ruthless in it. You were thinking about yourself. You slandered others. You were thinking about yourself over what God has called us to do. You will ensue strife. You will be deceitful. Hopefully, you don't murder anyone. Um, You'll envy things. You'll be covetous. Maybe you'll get angry to the point that it's sinful. We have to recognize that we are not exempt from this. When we believe and trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we were once this person fully, but, but Jesus came and he lived perfectly and he died horrifically and humiliated on the cross. And he went into that grave, defeating sin and death by raising to life again, giving us an opportunity to step into the life that he always created us for the purpose of bearing his image and bearing his love on the earth. And he fills us with his very delight, his very spirit to give us the power to do that. But we still struggle with these things. And the difference is, he says, practice. He says, who practice such things deserve to die. 
who practice such things, if you realize that this is a habit in your life, that this is something that you do and you are unrepentant, what that means is you do not turn away from it. When you realize in that moment that you were heartless or ruthless or deceitful and you don't come to God and say, God, I recognize this. I don't want to be like this. I recognize that you did not create me to be this way. God, would you help me? Would you fill me with your spirit that I can walk away from this? I want to bear your image and that is not image bearing. God, would you help me to walk away from it? That is called repentance and that is not practicing these things. But if you acknowledge these things and you continue to do it and you knowfully, like willingly and knowfully move forward in the practice, the practice of these things, that is where you get into trouble. That is where you get into trouble. But when you have been saved by the person and the work of Jesus, things change. (laughs) Things change. That these things are illuminated to you, that this is not the way you were created. And the spirit guides us in that, illuminating the things that he never intended for us to live in. I have to point out too, that I think in this scripture, it says, though they know God's righteous decree and that those who practice such things deserve to die. The world would say, why, why do they deserve to die? Why do they deserve to die? I want to bring to our attention that, that I heard this somewhere. That there is only, so in, in hell, right? We're going to take a dark turn here. In eternity, God will give us up to what we worship now. God will give us up. In the final judgment, as we enter into eternity, and we have to recognize that eternal life starts right now. He will give us up to what we worship here and now. He's just going to give us over to it. We really need to remember and acknowledge, and and really the best way to describe this, uh, I want to read this this verse to you. It's in John 31 or no, John three. There is no John 31. Uh, John three thirty one. It says he who comes from above is above all. Again, having a high view of God, seeing God as high and lifted up that he is our Lord and our savior. And we don't serve ourselves. We don't serve the creature. We serve the creator. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Again, recognizing that God is true and not suppressing it in unrighteousness. Then it says in 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Now listen here. It says, listen closely here. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
So if you have given your life over to Jesus, if you have recognized the person and the work of Jesus, that he lived perfectly, died horrifically and humiliated on the cross, went into the grave, defeating sin and death, he rose from the grave and ushered in the life that we were created to live. We have eternal life on us now, that it starts right now, that when we die uh, physically, when we die, things continue. They will look different after we enter into uh, uh, eternity, right? Um, things look different than they do now, but you, eternal life starts right now. If you never, um, if your spirit never dies, if you have eternal life, that starts right now. It doesn't start somewhere in the future. But he also says this, of whoever um, does not see Jesus, the person in the work of Jesus, and obey the Son. It says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In other translations, it says abides on him. I'm going to read it again. But the wrath of God remains on him. Those who disobey God and don't enter into the rest of God in salvation, who don't enter into the purpose and the life that Jesus Christ has provided for us on the cross— the wrath of God remains on us. So it's not this, God isn't like Zeus up in, the, up in the clouds ready to strike wrath upon us. It's that wrath rests on us from the moment that we rebel against God and serve ourselves rather than him, serve the creature rather than the creator. The wrath of God is already upon us. It's not God acting against us. It's his wrath is upon us when we are in rebellion to him. But if we enter into the life that Jesus has provided for us, sure, we may struggle with the things on this list. Again, hopefully not murder. But though we may struggle with the things on this list, if we are repentant and not practicing them, if we turn away from them, his wrath is not upon us. Because the thing is, there is only one in heaven. If we look at hell and, and, and he gives us, he will give us over to what we worship. So eternally, if we worship ourselves um, here on this earth, he will give us over to worshiping ourselves, right? Which ends up in this place where it says there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. If the things that we worship here on earth are our senses and that ends in death and destruction, he will give us up eternally to death and destruction. That's where we'll end up. But if we live for and serve God, we will eternally live for and serve God in eternity, the good and perfect loving God living in the city that is lit by his glory. That is where that is where he will give us up to. He will give us up to true life in eternity with him. He gives us up to the one we serve. He gives us up to the one we serve. And there is no one in hell, no one in hell who doesn't deserve to be there. There's no one in hell who doesn't deserve to be there. But there is only one 
in heaven who deserves to be there. And his name is Jesus. There will only be one in heaven who deserves to be there, and his name is Jesus. Hopefully that sinks in. We all deserve the wrath of God, and it's not impossible. It's not a problem that the wrath of God comes against the sons of disobedience, as scripture would call them. The sons of disobedience deserve to die because of their rebellion against God. That's not impossible. What's impossible is that God would put his wrath upon his son who did not deserve it so that we didn't have to have the wrath of God on us. He took the wrath instead of us. In Matthew 26, when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he says, let this cup pass from me, nonetheless, your will be done. As the ones who came with him have fallen asleep instead of praying in the garden, those ones who who disobeyed, who were disobeying as he was praying this, the cup that he was about to drink is all of the wrath that you deserve. It's all of the wrath that I deserve. He drank the whole cup. It's all gone. It is no longer on you, but instead it's life. What is on you now, what abides in you is the very spirit of God, the spirit of life, the spirit of love. It says, as we talked about on this podcast, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that is who abides in you. In the upper room discourse, when he says, I abide with the father, and then I will abide with you and you with me. That that wrath doesn't abide on you anymore. It doesn't remain on you anymore. When you see the person in the work of Jesus and you enter into the life, communing with him, meeting with him every morning in his presence, as you let the word of God usher you into the presence of God and you pray and you talk with him and you spend time in fellowship with him, what what abides in you is life and it's no longer wrath. Wrath is... And the wrath of God is not something that he thrusts upon us. He gives us over to it. But the crazy thing is that Jesus gave himself over to the wrath that you deserve so you don't have to have it on you anymore. The wrath of God exists because of the holiness of God. The wrath of God exists because of the holiness of God, and we don't deserve to be made holy, but he has sovereignly chosen you who believe to have life instead of wrath. And for this, it says in Hebrews 12, verse 28, because of that, therefore, let us be grateful and receiving the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire and that fire should consume us. But he loves us and God is love. So he sent his son to die for us on the cross, to make a way for us to know him and to no longer experience his wrath, but to experience his life. I skipped over this text because I wanted to close with it. 
as Paul enters into this letter where he's leaning into ultimately the depravity of man and what what that means in in the sight of a holy God and 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 what that means because of the wrath of God because of his holiness when we realize that we were we were vessels of wrath but now we we are our vessels of his glory that he is forming us into glory that should drive us into the mission of God the mission of the kingdom of God it says in verse 16 in Romans 1 for i am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes to the jew first and also to the greek for in it the righteousness of god is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith god because of his faithfulness came he died so that you could have faith and live in righteousness and not in wrath. Let's process what this means in our life. Let's celebrate it. Let's worship him. Maybe right now you need to just turn on worship music and celebrate him and worship him wherever you are. Take some time to recognize that he has saved you from his wrath. And now he is making you holy. And maybe some of you listening need to take time and wrestle with that fact because maybe you have never received the free gift of salvation of his grace and mercy on you that you have the wrath of God on you, but you don't have to because he drank that cup. For those of you who know that, let this, let this turn, turn you to worship and celebration and thanksgiving. For those of you who maybe haven't wrestled with that yet, would you wrestle with it? Would you receive the life that he created you for wherever you are, however you need to do that, have a conversation with him, with with God, because he has made a way for you to live free from his wrath. He will give you up to what you worship but he created you to worship him in life, in love, and in purpose. I pray that this is a blessing to you today. Let it guide you into this week, that it would be a week of thanksgiving and celebration. And next time we will uh, continue our trek through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Looking forward to it.